Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are entirely free, nearly 500 episodes and counting, all available free of charge. If you would like to support the Other People Podcast this holiday season, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. Right, you and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Just hey, everybody. One How's it going? Welcome to the Other People <laughs> right. Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. Here in Los Angeles, California. Very excited about today's show. I have Daniel A. Hoyt on the program. He's got a novel out called This Book Is Not For You. It is available from Dezank Books. It is the winner of the inaugural Dezank Fiction Prize, and it is also the official December selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The NervousBreakdown.com is, of course, my uh, online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club. If you would like to sign up for that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. So Daniel A. Hoyt and I coming up in just a moment. Before we get there, uh, I do want to address some uh, orders of business. The first being that uh, the holiday episode is coming up. There's a holiday spectacular. It's a kind of a tradition here on the Other People podcast. I think for the past three or four years, I've done a holiday spectacular episode right around this time. And uh, it's coming up. I just got to do the edit on the episode. It's a bit of an uh, you know edit-intensive endeavor and i have to find the time i have to carve out the time in my schedule to get that done but trust that it will happen fingers crossed okay so uh otherwise i've got some mail from a listener named sam he says uh dear brad i listened to episode 490 with Jarrett middleton that was a great episode it was so good that i actually listened to it twice which i've never done with any podcast before when you two talked about the nature of death one of you mentioned an alan watts quote I can't even remember what it was, which reminded me of another Watts quote that I always come back to when thinking of death. He says, quote, we do not come into this world. We come out of it as leaves from a tree. Wow. I just got very uh, enthused there when I said come out of it. So let me start again. <laughs> Alan Watts says, quote, we do not come into this world. 
we come out of it as leaves from a tree, as the ocean, quote unquote, waves, the universe, quote unquote, peoples. Every individual is an expression of the whole realm of nature, a unique action of the total universe. This fact is rarely, if ever, experienced by most individuals. Even those who know it to be true, in theory, do not sense or feel it, but continue to be aware of themselves as isolated egos inside bags of skin. End quote. And then Sam continues, uh, I always take this quote to be comforting regarding death because it's like, you know, how can you be afraid of something that you spawned out of the universe? You came out of it, not into it. Thanks, Sam. So thank you, Sam. I appreciate the letter. It's making me realize, you know, or at least it's, uh, it's reminding me, you know, once again, that I am one of these people who I think understands in theory that I'm one with the universe that I am, a, you know, like an inseparable part of all that is at least on some, you know, strange, some atop, you know, subatomic level. Uh, and yet I cannot really feel it. I don't have like a lived experience of this. I haven't had that, you know, that Nirvana or that epiphanic or that whatever you want to call it experience. I'm an isolated ego inside of a bag of skin is what I'm saying. And yet I feel like if you try to have the experience of felt oneness with all that is, it's like you're forcing it. You can't force it. It's sort of got to happen, but maybe you can do things like meditation or what, you know, what else can you do to sort of seed the field and, uh, you know, lay the groundwork. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe there's ways to sort of prepare yourself. So it's interesting too, that you wrote, uh, that you wrote to me, Sam, about this, uh, very subject because earlier in the week, I got another letter from a different listener who wrote to me in a way that I cannot paraphrase. So I'm not being coy here. I don't mean to, um, you know, keep this from you guys, but like, there's absolutely no way for me to like pull quote this letter or excerpt it or paraphrase it. It's like this giant letter that this guy wrote to me. And uh, he was talking about this very thing as a person who actually has experienced this. And I think quite credibly. And uh, I think the, the main reason why I say so is just the quality of the letter and uh, his description of his experience. But then, you know, the other thing is that he had this experience in the wake of a horrific accident that left him paralyzed. And I think, uh, you know, from all that I've read and all that I've heard on this uh, subject over the years uh, one of the things that I think often catalyzes this sort of experience based on what, uh, I've gathered is, uh, like an experience where you sort of have to surrender. It's like an extreme situation and often a, a, an extreme, a state of extreme suffering is what brings it on. So anyway, I mean, it's like, I've, I've had some very interesting mail this week is my point. And then, uh, as a capper. Uh, this evening I came home from work. Uh, I'm recording this at night. So just a, you know, a couple of hours ago I was sitting, uh, and eating dinner and my wife Carrie comes up to me and she hands me a piece of paper and she says, Hey, you know, I thought that, uh, this was a Christmas card. The envelope had no return address. So I opened it, but it's to you. And she hands me this uh, letter and I read it and it says, dear Mr. Listy, thank you for your letter concerning our president and my comments in that regard. I have found no joy in reaching a point where commenting in such a way, became necessary, but this situation demands all of us not be numbed and duped by such behavior. Our country is at stake. 
It is uplifting to realize that there are many others like yourself who demand more from whomever may occupy the office of the presidency, and certainly not one who brings such shame in so many ways. Be safe and never settle. Sincerely, Greg Popovich. So for those of you who are basketball fans, Greg Popovich is the coach of the San Antonio Spurs. He's a Hall of Fame coach. He's won uh, multiple championships. He's one of the most successful coaches in the United States of America at any level. And a very smart guy. And, you know, many weeks ago, I would say like eight to ten weeks ago, uh, I wrote him a letter. And the reason that I wrote to him is because, you know, if, if you pay attention to sports at all, or, you know, you might have even seen this on social media in passing, Popovich has on more than one occasion stood in front of microphones and been very eloquent in speaking truth to power uh, to Donald Trump, which is unusual behavior for a sports coach. It's not something we normally see on ESPN. It's not something we normally see in our culture where a sports coach is engaging uh, national politics explicitly in a post-game interview, <laughs> uh, to say the least. But uh, I feel that the, you know, the, the situation that we're in, the times that we're living in, calls for it. We're in, a, we're in an extreme situation. And uh, I just was very relieved, frankly, to hear Popovich uh, talking like that, because I feel like that's the sort of thing we need. We need people in the culture who have platforms and who have, you know, uh, some influence and who, especially those who are able to be really eloquent about it and to speak with some authority and who have built, uh, you know, some trust within their communities or with, you know, within their fan bases or whatever. We need that sort of thing. So I think what I was doing was I was writing to him with the idea that like, I need to encourage him and we all should be encouraging people who have big megaphones to keep speaking up because we need them to do so. And I was also anticipating that he was probably going to have to suffer some backlash, you know, especially coaching down in Texas. Like God only knows, like half his fan base probably disagrees with him. You know, I think, I don't know, but I wanted to make sure that he heard from me. That was like the feeling that I had. And, you know, it's an extension of what I've been doing this whole year where I've been writing a lot of letters to people as a sort of, uh, you know, w as a way to counteract the negativity, like swirling in our country and in our culture. And I felt like it's a great way to get away from my phone and get away from social media and do something, uh, constructive with my time and communicate in a way that feels personal and, uh, not superficial or, or, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And he wrote back to me. So that's been this week. That's just this week, the letters that I've gotten. Uh, and I, I'm not doing justice to the one that I talked about in the middle because I didn't read it, but that one's sort of the fulcrum of my whole week. And, uh, it's gotten me thinking in a lot of different, uh, ways, uh, that are good, you know? And I appreciate everybody listening. I appreciate everybody listening and, uh, and those who, who take the time to write to me. And I appreciate Greg Popovich. He's a busy guy. He's an NBA coach, you know, taking time to sit down and respond to my weird little note. So, Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, anyway, let's get on with the program, shall we? Daniel A. Hoyt is my guest. His novel is called This Book Is Not For You, winner of the Dezank Fiction Prize, uh, December pick for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It is available now from Dezank Books. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Daniel A. Hoyt. So, you know, it was, I mean, um, the kind of suburbs where it, it was almost totally... Um, you know, middle class, um, some some lower middle class, a lot of upper middle class, um, a lot of a lot of professionals who did work in Boston or in the, the surrounding companies, and you know things like uh, a, a almost complete lack of diversity in the town, and in terms of um, you, you know ethnic and racial makeups, and lots of wasps. Um, so so. It, you know, in a, in a, in a strange um, way, it was all American in the way that we know um, all American is false and um, and 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 um, worrisome. So um, I, I was really glad to even even though, you know, my like upbringing was was fine. Um, I was glad to get out into the world and, and move half a continent away and um, and and live in a place even though it was you know the middle of missouri um but because it was a college town and i and i was going to university that 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 did have um more and different people and and more and different opportunities um and and my and my parents um were, were totally um you know had had a, a waspy background um but but neither went to to college um what did they and, do what did they do for a living yeah, so my my dad was a um, a bank manager, and um, he he worked at the local branch and and managed it for you know thirty five years or so. Um, but because he didn't have a college degree, and, and perhaps because of his own sort of lack of ambition, or maybe maybe not that, but maybe anxiety and worry or what have you. Um, so that's where he sort of stopped in terms of going up the, up the food chain. Um, and my mom, um, when, when we were, my sister and I were younger, she was at home, but then she had, um, various jobs and often did bookkeeping. Um, and she worked for ADT, uh, the security company, but then for most of the time she worked in the, in the local town hall. Um, and that was her hometown where, where she grew up. So she knew tons of people and, and did bookkeeping there. Um, and, and so, um, like my thinking about my parents, like my my mom, she's she's a very good cook, but but she's the most boring cook in the world. So like salt and pepper are these exotic spices. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's right. And um, and when I when I moved away, like there were 
all these things that, you know, I got to discover, like hummus. What the fuck is hummus? Or <laughs> Baba Ganoush, like, you, you, moved, you moved to Manhattan, Kansas and discovered hummus? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, well, that, no, that was uh, Columbia, Missouri at the time. Right. But yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, who, who does that, right? You <laughs> moves to the middle of the Midwest, uh, Columbia, Missouri, and, and, um, and discovers the world. So um, what, kind but, of ki- what kind of kid were you? Um, you know, well, of course, I, of course, I read a lot, and um, and I, you know, I was pretty, pretty quiet, um, and did love to read, starting in probably about, yeah, first grade or second grade. Although, like, from from leaving kindergarten, and there's this this weird story about me leaving um, leaving kindergarten and not wanting to leave kindergarten. Um, and then on the first day of first grade, and I think I can remember it because only it's only, but I know I can't, I can remember it because it's been told to me that on the first day of first grade, like I had a screaming, crying fit and, and I was holding onto a pole outside the elementary school and my mother was trying to rip me, rip me off of it, of course, to get me into class. And apparently what I said is that I would never be able to read. Um, and well, and, and so I was wrong, you know, like, <laughs> I guess I figured it at some point um so so you know i i from that i think i was i was um pretty pretty sheltered and wanted to be at home and i like to imagine things and i still have a weird box of um like a shoe box somewhere in the house of like you know like hundreds and hundreds of, of drawings that i did and just like you know stupid dungeons and dragons type stuff and and star wars type stuff and um i still have all my my um lego sets which um you know were, were such great fun the spaceship sets that came out at that time um so so i think i you know i like to live in my head a lot um in in high school and 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 things like that then um you know, I always liked music, and that's when I started to get into rock and roll. And my first concert was the band The Cult, um, famous for She Sells Sanctuary. And it was at the Orpheum Theater in um, in Boston. I think I was 15. And, and of course, that was huge and so important. The Divinals actually opened up. Um, and, and um, yeah, and that was just sort of great and amazing and the cult was a terrific live band so i think i was lucky that that was my show yeah i, I, had, um, I had i had huey lewis in the news so i think you <laughs> how, how was huey live we were it was like i've told this story on the show i think once or twice but i was like my family had just moved to indiana and i think my parents felt bad and so they're like we're gonna take the kids to a concert and my mom my parents were clueless when it came to rock and roll or anything like that and so they got us tickets but our tickets were behind the stage. So like we were like oh, looking at the back of Huey Lewis and then like a couple times during the show he would like turn around and like sing to the back of, you know, this the uh the stadium or whatever and it was uh you know, it was about what you would expect. Yeah. How old were you then? I was like eleven, I think. Okay. Eleven years old. And like remember that song The Heart of Rock and Roll? Yeah, of course it's still beating, Brad. Yeah. <laughs> right. Remember uh, how he goes through and he sings all the different cities where he's like New York, New York and Boston and you know he does all that stuff. Yeah. Well, we we were in Indianapolis, which does not factor into the song as it, you know, as it was recorded, but of course when he's singing live in Indianapolis, he like wedged it in there. Um everyone went crazy. So, it's like yeah, it, was, it was like that's... that it was like that sort of thing. Well, um you know, it's funny because in in um the literature of rock and roll, we talk about 
moments like that a lot and and with the the idea of the aesthetic of recognition and thinking about how of course we see it as this great literary thing that oh my gosh i saw this i figured out this reference to virgil and and i get it and i feel great um but rock and rollers use this all the time with their, their appeals to our um to, to the places we live and then the the best of course is when they play a cover and we recognize that and that great joy that we have um yeah so so hats off to huey for thinking of the people in <laughs> indianapolis yeah i don't know where he'd fit it in because they're they're all like two beats in that song i think and yeah he was it was it was, it was very uh, delicate but he managed to pull it off and he's uh, a pro he's a pro oh, and then, yeah all, all the news are pros yeah <laughs> so did you play in bands and did, did you have any siblings or is it just you growing up i think you mentioned uh, so like, yeah i have, a, have an older sister um and and she has musical talent she she played trumpet, um and, and she has athletic talent too she she was a softball pitcher and and pretty damn good um and and uh, me i have i have no talent in terms of like athleticism or music and in music it's it's particularly galling because i love it so much um but i like like 15 so that same year when i went to see the cult um i you know bought an electric guitar and an amp and i and i still have both somewhere just like a cheap pv amp um and and i and i thought just by like owning these things that i would would acquire the ability to play them um, but it, but it doesn't work out that way. So I have no rhythm. I can't sing. Um, I, I guess I can sometimes clap along. <laughs> that's about that's about like me too. You know the the truth of it, the truth of it is is that uh, I mean I know that there's something there, there's such a thing as talent when it comes to anything. Uh, but for these purposes, like for like a musical instrument, you ha- there's such a thing as having like an innate ability with, with an instrument and uh, you know an ability to pick it up faster than other people, but even then, to get really good at an instrument, you have to sort of be obsessive, and you have to practice obsessively, and you have to like to do that. Uh, I guess it's the same with with writing or anything, but uh, I don't know. I guess there, in my head, I want to believe that like Jimi Hendrix just picked up the thing and could play, and and maybe he could, but I, I feel like he probably just sat there noodling with it like five hours a day, like everybody right. else, everybody else who's great at it. Yeah, 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 and that's what I I, I think you're right on that that. Um, all the, the real musicians I know, well, sure, they have, they have some, some sort of sense in their brain that maybe things are a little more intuitive. Um, but no, they, they practiced a ton and it mattered to them and, and they cared about it enough to, to, you know, push their fingers into the strings and, and, and get the bar chords down and, um, and, and figured out the right tunings and, and played with different people and asked for advice and, yeah, and you're right. And like, like sitting and, and noodling. Like, um, I, I assume that my friends who can actually play guitar, well, they always had a guitar in their hands if they were watching stupid mash reruns. They, right. were, they were they were messing around too. So, um, what, what yeah. were some of the big bands for you? Like, you, you mentioned the Cult, but like, were there like what are the formative bands for for Daniel Hoyt? Yeah. So. Um, well, there's one band that I think was hugely important, but but now of course I can't stand, which is U2. Um, and and I was at it's funny because it was just and I'm only thinking of them because of the the reunion the the Joshua Tree reboot tour that they just did. Um, and and I went to two of the Joshua Tree tours back in '86. Um, 
or what or was it 87 um and 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 they were great and 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 political and i think when i when i considered guitar players um i feel like the edge doesn't get his due at times and maybe it's because of bono is always yelping and 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 pushing the edge to the side but that distinctive peeling sound um in that time period too like um a, a great boston band the del fuegos um which i their their song um don't run wild still means so much to me and and in that time i'm thinking about um growing up and of course it was the age like the the mid 80s and the age of mtv but we were one of these families that didn't have cable television um my my parents um you know we probably made like a solid middle class living um but but my parents like saved everything and then they were so frugal so so we didn't have cable but for a short time boston had a a local video channel called v66 um, and they had local VJs from from um, rock radio stations, um, and they couldn't play all the all the videos. So, like, I, I did not see Thriller because they didn't have the rights to to play it. Um, but but local bands like the Del Fuegos got to you know star on on um, on the on this channel, and um, so it's it's so much of it is is wrapped up in that nostalgia and that sense of place and that um and and the idea of the del fuegos too like i i knew that they were a local band but also like an indie band and 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 they didn't belong to everyone um in the way that like hey the cars well the cars belong to the entire united states or the or the world um and, and the same with you too um but but a band like the del fuegos no no that that belonged to the people who watched v66 and it's uh, it's funny because um, an old buddy of mine from high school, um, he actually has started a, a a once a week radio show where he's trying to recapture the the old days of Boston rock when there was a great radio station called WBCN, which was album oriented rock and and um, broke all kinds of new bands. And um, Boston used to have a have a great um, radio station. Um, WFNX, which was affiliated with the Boston Phoenix, the, the alternative newspaper, neither of which exist anymore. So that's why I think about like what what you do, Brad, and like reach out to the world and and interview people and and talk about indie books and talk about music. Like this this is a vital vital literary and and, and arts oriented service um, that we used to get all the time on on corporate radio. Yeah, it's like that, there's not so many outlets on the on the mainstream dial for this sort of stuff for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. So those are the bands. The other the other I think about is um, that that's probably when I discovered Springsteen um, and and just and and so many of his, his his early stuff, of course, is about being a young person and, and growing up and fucking things up and figuring things out and then um his great sort of um huge live album set came out i think when i was like a junior or senior um and all all his his terrific stories were there about you know playing the guitar on the roof because of his dad yelling at him um so it was great to discover his music then are you still a fan you know i'm probably not quite as much um and and there was a point when i just sort of stopped 
buying Springsteen, and and maybe it's because um, it didn't didn't speak to me in the same way, or maybe it's because I just kept on discovering new and different bands, and and you can only buy you know so many CDs or only have so much time to listen. Um, I still appreciate what he does. Um, I do think about the weird sense of his life because of course he's this multi multi millionaire and um when he's on tour he's staying in these great great hotels um you know that that he he's he's the the point one percent um but he's he's still trying to speak for everyone and and i appreciate that but i but i also then there there's part of me that thinks well there's a falsehood to it um, I wonder that too with his live show. I've never seen him live, and of course, you know, it, it it sounds like he's great. But there's part of me that thinks I'd be sitting there, and and think it's a shtick, and and I don't think I'd want to. Since I are, since I'm already anticipating that would feel like a shtick, I, I think it might be a self fulfilling prophecy, um, and I wouldn't want that to happen. Yeah, I mean, and, I, I feel like he grew up. I mean, he grew up uh, hard scrabble, so at least he's yeah. he he knows that. And then he was poor when he was like what in his early twenties or whatever. But he's lived uh, high on the hog for a long time. I think he knows that as well as anyone. I guess the question is like, if like how long can you be wealthy? Uh, or, or like, does being wealthy for a long period of time have a blinding effect? Is there any way to counter that? Like, do you lose touch when you're that comfortable and that insulated from like the the kind of uh, common discomforts and stresses that almost everybody else has to deal with? You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, I, I do. Yeah, and, and Brad, I think it's like this this great and huge question because we're, we're seeing it in the world and and. Um, and well, particularly in the United States, right, where we have this this sense where um, there there's this this upper 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 class that we don't even know about, <laughs> where that where you know they they um, and and they they have their own social circles and their own perhaps soon their own special tax codes and um, and their lives are, are nothing like like. Hey, my life, even though I'm, I'm squarely upper middle class now. Um, but you know, I, I mow my fucking lawn and, and walk to work and, and drive a, a 2000 Chevy S10 that, that I got from my dad when he, when he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and, and I'll drive it until it dies. And, um, and, and so sadly, I, I, and, and maybe you know, and it's it's probably not fair because it, Springsteen is this great, great artist. But but I I just can't imagine that he wouldn't lose something, um, and that 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 maybe the stories that he is he is telling have to become more fictional, um, or or maybe he can tap into that hard scrabble youth. And of course that yeah, it was totally true. And and like when I listen to his old stuff, I believe every word. And and it, like and I love the. Nebraska album and and yeah and in so much of that he's of course fictionalizing telling other people's stories um, and I believe it so so maybe maybe I need to just think of him in that way that he's that he's he's a fiction writer and he's great at it um, so so next time he tours I'm, I'm gonna go and, and convince myself that way uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Just try, um, but, try, just try not to think of him in five star splendor as he's uh, right, right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, right. So, yeah. uh, were you raised with any religion? Did you grow up in a, in a religious household? I mean, Massachusetts. I'm I'm automatically thinking Irish Catholic, but maybe that wasn't it. Yeah, no, you know. So, um, really, um, not at all, and, it, and it's pretty pretty unusual that that. Um, my mother, she remains, and when I do her taxes, she gives like like ten or fifteen dollars, or sometimes more, fifty bucks to the um, congregational church where she was um, allegedly a member. But but I think like I could count how many times I went to church on on one hand um, as a child, um, and and really I. I, I don't think my mom would say this in these terms, um, but but she's an atheist and, and doesn't believe. And I, I do think she'll say something like, well, "When you're dead, you you know you end up in the ground." Um, and and so and my dad, um, well, I think a lot about my dad because mainly what he did was was work, and I think worry and um, my my amateur diagnosis is that he was clinically depressed for his whole life so he had he had no interest in really anything um so i i I don't think he had any spiritual beliefs it's it's funny that um actually when he was diagnosed with alzheimer's and had to go live in assisted living that's when he did get um get prescribed an antidepressant um, which which really did wonders, and for a short time he like he he showed an interest in other things despite his his really failing brain, um, and and he did talk about um, he did go to church a few times with one of my aunts his his older sister, um, and 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 that seemed to matter to him, um, and at times um, so at one point he he wandered off and it was horrible and 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 got got lost he was allowed to walk on the grounds um but then but then he wandered away um so then he had to move to a dementia ward where where you're 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 locked in essentially um and i think this is the time when i had to tell him that he was moving back to the dementia ward and at first he was really mad and and that's sort of like my sadly my major memories of him are him being mad um that that he, at first he was really mad but but not not in too bad a way um and then we talked the next day and he said i'll do whatever i need to do to stay alive and it was this and and i'd never heard him think about things like that or or never heard him you know think about you know death or existence um so it was this sort of weird moment um my guess is he really didn't believe um so so um you know i don't i don't say it a lot because i don't want it to to like alienate my students and things like that but but i'm an atheist and and and, and i'll talk about this with with individual students in my office and things like that but um i i i am believe deeply in sort of ethics and morality and our commitment to others but i but i think we make our own meaning um and and i try to think about that when i'm when i'm working on fiction or when when i'm teaching a class that hey this matters because we say it matters and let's do this and and let's try to find beauty and let's try to think about about the sadness of our lives and understand it and reflect on it um 
but yeah, I guess I'm like my mom when, when I'm, when we're dead, um, it, it's the, the end of pain. Um, and, and you end up on the ground. Is there any kind of like, do you have any sense of like an overarching connective cosmic thing happening or is it just a massive void out there? <laughs> um, you know, I, I <laughs> man, Brad, I didn't know we were going to, we were going to go this deep. Yeah. Um, this is what yeah, I do. Yeah. That's what, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think of it in a cosmic way, but I, but I do think of it as this, this humanistic connection that we, that we, that we create and make and, and, um, our, our relationships with others and, and how we care for others and, um, and, and how we live our lives and, and, and what we want our lives to represent. So I, I do see it as this human made construction. Um, and, and there are times when, yeah, you know, it must be really great to have faith. And, and I, you know, that, that what, what a, what a buoy when you're, when you're in deep water to, to be able to hold on to that and float. Um, but, but I just, I don't feel it. And, and it's funny because, um, one of the, the book projects that I'm working on is, um, is a nonfiction um, book about the fifth down game, which was a famous football game in um, in 1990 when when the refs made a mistake and they gave Colorado an extra fifth down against the University of Missouri. All right, and, I remember that. I, yeah, I went to University of Colorado, so that's like part of the lore. Oh my gosh! Okay, that's what, so yeah. So 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 you know, of course, then that Bill McCartney was the the Colorado coach. Um, so I got a chance to interview him a few years ago and, and Bill McCartney, um, not only coached at Colorado and that year with the fifth down game, they want to share the national championship. Um, but he started the promise keepers, this, this right. Christian group. And so I, I, he, you know, and, and he totally has, he, he is this, like central casting could not have done it better, but he's, he's the, the, the total, uh, summation of both a football coach and, and like an old school preacher. So he has this sort of gripping personality, um, and, and sitting there in, in this Panera and, and neither one of us <laughs> ate, you know, drinking out of these huge Panera cups of coffee. And he's like telling me about how if you ask, god for faith he will give it to you right and 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 i didn't come on and tell him that i'm atheist because i he he right away he, he could tell that i was i was open to listening to him um and and i am and 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 i, I admire that he has this faith um and and um and, and in a certain way i even admire that that he, he he asked me to take that risk but what i what i didn't say to him of course because i just wanted him to talk and get all his stories and, and not my jibber jabber um but i didn't say but yeah but 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 bill what if this is the one fucking time when god doesn't pick up right <laughs> uh, so i don't know what you'd say to that i think he'd be pissed if i swore um yeah so so and a lot of my students have faith um and and you know and 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 care about it deeply. Um, yeah, like what? Are, like you teach? Uh, you're teaching like creative writing and so on and so forth at, at Kansas State in, in Manhattan, Kansas. Which I have to like point out for a guy who does a literary show. I talk to so many writers from New York. Uh, it's nice to be talking to somebody who's from 
Manhattan, Kansas instead of. (laughs) (laughs) It's the little apple. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. And we have at at midnight, um, the ball drops, but it is indeed a little apple. (laughs) So, but like, what kind of student are you getting a lot of farm kids? You get me because you don't probably get a ton of kids from out of state, do you? Uh, you know, n- not a ton, but but there's probably you know I I guess that like ten percent or so. But but the thing about it, and and one of the things that I preach all the time about Kansas and the Midwest in general is it it is it is way more diverse than people think. So my students, you know, we have the um, I have students from. Uh, Kansas City, Kansas, and and then also you know some from from over on the on the Missouri side, Kansas City, Missouri. But then the the huge suburbs of of Kansas City, Missouri, um, which essentially is like one big Panera, right? Is um, <laughs> it, so many of those students, and it, it's Johnson County, and and their parents, you know, have have upper middle class jobs, and um, and they then they come here, and then we do have um, rural students who have, you know, a graduating class of a hundred or a graduating class of twenty five, um, and and then. Um, you know, there, there's a, a, a growing Latino population here, of course. Um, so, so it's 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 more diverse than you'd think, and um, and of course, grad students we get, you know, grad students from everywhere. Um, so, so yeah, my my students are it's it's a, a a richer and and more interesting body than student body than than people might originally think. And I think the same thing about the landscape of, of Kansas too. Well, no, we have cities here, and and um, and we have and we have these rich, strange college towns like Lawrence, Kansas, is um, where I, where I um, got my PhD. Is this great, weird college town where the adult kickball league um, just gave ten thousand dollars to charity, and and they have this. Adult kickball league where like thousands of people go to the Sunday night game of the week. So it has, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, and, and, and there are all these moments too where Lawrence was, was close to becoming the next Seattle in terms of rock bands. Um, and then where I live, um, Kansas is not flat. We're in the Flint Hills. So it's beautiful and hilly. And, um, yeah, Western Kansas is flat and sometimes seems desolate, but there's a beauty to that too, that there's this huge big sky. Like, no, fuck you, Montana. We have the big sky. Yeah. It goes forever. Yeah. One of my, one of my best friends in college, uh, she grew up on a, a huge farm in, in Goodland, Kansas, right there near the Colorado border. And oh, yeah, yeah. That's man, true. we'd go, like, we'd go through there and that's, uh, you can, you know, far as the eye can see, that's the big sky, Kansas. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. You turn everywhere and, um, yeah, it, and it just—it's amazing sometimes. Um, hey, so Brad, so you—you you moved to Indianapolis um, when you were eleven. So where did you grow up from, and 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 why did your parents go to the Midwest? Well, yeah, so I, you know, I was born in Milwaukee, so I kind of, yeah. I kind of split my childhood between Milwaukee and Indiana, um, eight years in each place. So first half would be Milwaukee, and then there was like a two-year interlude where we lived out in San Francisco, um, and then we went back to Milwaukee, and then we went to Indiana. In um, it was just my dad's job, you know. That was all. My parents are from Louisiana, so okay. okay. Um, but I was raised in the Midwest. I mean, that's my that's my milieu. And then when yeah. I when I went to Colorado for college, my two roommates in college were both from Kansas City. So, and I used to drive back and forth from Colorado to Indiana and would cut right through Kansas, the, you know, the entire east to west 
uh, breath of the state on I seventy. So, man, I, yeah, that's a that's a that's a haul. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what. Um, yeah, that that can be uh, particularly at the end of like a college semester. That can be a long long drive that's what the, um, that's what pod is for or at least that's what it was for back in the day <laughs> so, right, right, yeah, yeah. it's a straight shot you know you're pretty pretty much just like straight shot for about six and a half seven hours um so well, let's let's get back to i want to get back to kind of tracing the line of um you know your youth and then transitioning from being this sort of like music obsessed uh high school student to getting out to what did you say university of missouri to study journalism like that. I remember hearing about the university of Missouri's journalism program when I was in high school and was sort of, you know, writerly. And I think my parents were trying to like advise me and, uh, probably should have taken their advice, but it was like, it's one of those places that, you know, if you, if you're interested in journalism, you can, you can do a heck of a lot worse than, than Missouri. It's got sort of a, a legendary journalism program. So uh, how did that happen? Like, how did you yeah. wind up? How did you wind up there coming from uh, suburban Boston? So, it, you know, it was kind of weird because I, I think when, when you know, my mother probably had this idea that I would go to like Bodwin College or Colby College or something like that, one of the, you know, New England liberal arts colleges. Um, and, and I think, you know, and, and some of it, it, it's like me trying to, to, to do some kind of archaeological journal journey and, and dig up my, my past. Um, I think I knew that I, I wanted to go to a big sort of state school, and and I don't know why that mattered to me, but it but it did. Maybe it was because I started to become a basketball fan then, and it was the idea of going to a place that had big time basketball. Um, so so I applied to you know I don't know how many. I think. Um, well, first I applied to to University of North Carolina, which probably was totally basketball um, related, and I, I applied for early admission, um, and then they they waitlisted me. So of course it was this crushing thing because it would have been super easy my senior year because you apply to early admission back then, you get in and you're done, right? Because um, you have to accept. So so then um, you know I applied a, a bunch of other places, and I think it was in March or so that. I, I then had my my top two choices, and I applied to some on the East Coast, like NYU, and you know, and NYU wanted to give me you know a two thousand buck scholarship, which you know, sure that's fine, except where's the twenty eight thousand coming from? <laughs> well, right, you know, that's a, although I knew it probably it would it would have come from my parents' savings. That's what they were saving for. Um, but but then um, so I went to visit um, University of Michigan and, and University of Missouri and, and was accepted at both of them and um, and and they both had journalism programs um, and that's why of course I applied to Missouri because of its reputation um, and and so I applied to both of them and went to visit and went to Michigan and and I remember sitting um, at a at a table like a welcome table um for this orientation um and and sitting with a, a a kid who went to prep school and his mom and they were super nice but i'm just like these are not my people and it was pouring rain um and 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 then um then the next day i flew down to to missouri and and hey it's missouri and and everyone's super friendly and nice and the sun was shining and it was 70 degrees and and 
hey, that was it. That sold you. I, I made that sold me right, and um, and and so um, I, I'm I'm lucky because it it actually was a, a great great place to to become a journalist, and and the Missouri J School, um, they they they're this. They have this great belief in, in actually just being a journalist, and of course, which is how he used to do it. You know, 50 years ago, you went to work as a as a copy boy, and and then they let you do some writing, and and you just did it and became a journalist. Um, well, that's what you do at Missouri. That that you, um, I did the the print journalism um, sequence, which meant that hey, as a as a junior and senior, I I worked for their daily newspaper run by the J School. Um, and, and you'd take a class and work for 30 hours a week, writing articles and learning how to edit. And, um, and, and the, the editors are, are people who have had industry careers. Often, um, people have had great industry careers and, and they run you through the ropes and, and, um, so it was great. And it was, you know, I learned so much about writing and about story and you had to do it all the time. And um, at that point, I was a, a sports reporter. Um, so there was always the sense that, hey, well, you know, most most um, sporting events have some sort of climax, but you also have to make it a, a, a human experience for people. Um, and luckily, this was back in the day before everyone knew everything about every single game going on because <laughs> of the Internet. Um, so you had to tell a story to people. Um, and that was a, a, a great, great experience. Um, and, and so, um, you know, my, my decision making might have been flawed as a, as a 17 year old, um, in terms of picking a school, but, but it, it worked out pretty great. So yeah, did, and did you, what kind of journalism did you do professionally? I mean, you talked a little bit about interviewing McCartney. So, and you talked, uh, just a second ago about sports journalism. So is that the, the focus for you or did it, yes. did it... Um, so, so first when I was working for the, the University of Missouri's, um, J school newspaper, which is separate from the student newspaper, I, I was a sports reporter and then, um, also did sort of sports editing. And then my senior year, I worked as a, as a correspondent for the Kansas city star. Um, so I also covered all kinds of sports stories then. Um, and, and so that the main reporter who didn't live in Columbia would always have someone on the ground and do reporting and help out at games. So, so I did tons of reporting then. Um, then I, I, after that, I, got my um, master's degree and, um, and and taught in Romania at a university for a semester. But when I came back, I got um, jobs as a first mainly as a sports copy editor. So working these, you know, till midnight or 1am and sometimes 2am, um, just putting out the stories and, and sports happens every single night and happens on the West coast. So it's this, this weird combination of having to do something really meticulous and tedious, you know, copy editing and making sure things are correct and asking questions. Um, but also having that weird adrenaline rush. Um, so I did that at, at, a um, the other daily paper in, in, in Columbia, Missouri, um, which is, it's this weird small college town with, that is, has tons and tons of media because of the J school. Um, and then I did that in La Crosse, Wisconsin, where I was a sports copy editor. Um, but then I also did news editing there. 
Um, and when I left lacrosse, I went to Kansas City, Missouri. Um, and, and at that point, the Kansas City Star was was one of the best sports sections in the country. And Joe Posnanski and um, Jason Whitlock were the columnists at the time. And um, so it was this, this great, great place to work, but also um, so exhausting because, um, yeah, every night, you know, you work until 1.30 in the morning. Um, weirdly, it was also a great time for, for me as a, as a fiction writer, not because I was writing, I wasn't writing at all. Um, but I would read a ton because you would stay up until, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd work until one thirty, and, and then, you know, at Wednesday night in Kansas city, there's nothing to do. Um, so you go home and, and then, but then I'd read fiction. So I, I read so much those years. Um, and, and, you know, at least a, a novel a week. Um, so it was great to be this sort of really richly engaged reader. So but, but like, I was going to ask, you know, because like where does fiction fit into all of this in terms of your ambition? Like when you went off to Missouri to study journalism, were you, were you harboring um, ideas about being a fiction writer or did that come later? You know, I I always liked the idea of, of writing fiction. Um, I think the pragmatic sense of how I was raised, that, that I knew if I was going to um, write and make any money, although it even seems funny now with all my friends who have been laid off, um, I you know, the idea of making money led to, to journalism, not fiction writing. But at Missouri as an undergrad, I, I started taking, you know, um, fiction workshops, and they were great. And, and so important and 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 i love them and being in this community and writing stories and i still think about um the first class that i took with a a graduate student who was um, um a teaching assistant who who taught that intro fiction writing course a guy named dave sharp and he actually teaches in a uh community college um outside of kansas city now and um and he was funny and irreverent and had us read cool stuff um and, and, um, you know, and, and he appreciated what I was doing and I could always write good sentences. So I, I took classes like, like that and probably took like, you know, four classes as, as an undergrad. Um, and, and it was great and, and really meaningful. Um, and then when I, when I pursued the MA that, you know, I, I applied to like, um, you know, five top MFA programs and, and, I wasn't writing stories, you know, I could write like 10 pages where, where maybe five of the pages had some cool sentences. So, so I mailed off those five applications and then like the very next day I got five rejections from top MFA programs. So I ended up staying at the university of Missouri to get my MA because, Hey, they were my people and they had to keep me of course. Um, so, so I wrote, wrote fiction there, um, you know, and, and I was serious about it then, but, but I don't know, I, I I don't know how super serious I was. And there are times when I think, looking back, if I had gotten into one of those top MFAs, I don't know if I would have would have gotten enough out of it at that time um, that that I wrote and I cared about it. But I still don't think I was writing stories, um, even though one of my professors, Trudy Lewis, who is a great short story writer, said, hey, these aren't stories. Um, but but I, I don't think I figured it out. Um, so after that, and I, and I think I chose my, my, you know, where I was at that, that I read a lot and I, I maybe harbored this idea of writing fiction, but I didn't do it. 
you know, and maybe I, I would sit down and buy, you know, like a brand new notebook and write one sentence and then, and then, you know, close it up and not touch it. And it wasn't until, um, so I was in Kansas city and working at the star and, and there are parts of it that I loved and met great people and, 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 um, got to be involved in, um, in this, in this sports section that really meant a ton to the community and, and to the people of Kansas city. Um, but it was also s- sort of soul crushing to, to, you know, be there copy editing and doing the same thing. And there's, there's a cycle to the sports season, which is sort of both great, but, um, but annoying. Um, and at the same time that I, a weird thing happened with me that, um, I had open heart surgery and, I, I what, what, knew, what, what happened? Yeah, so I had um, um, I knew as a as a kid that I had a heart murmur, um, but but that's what the doctors just like oh he has a heart murmur it's fine, and then when I was like twenty seven or so in Kansas City, I started feeling this weird like fluttering in my chest, and and even though now I think it's sort of this writerly cliche to have a have a bird like fluttering in your chest. That's what it felt like. And um, so, so I, you know, went to my HMO um, and, and it was actually a, a nurse practitioner and I wish I remembered her name, but I don't. And, and she listened to it. And I think right away that she, she knew something was off. Um, and then, so then I got sent to a cardiologist and, um, and, and he sure as hell, as soon as he listened knew. And so like, like three weeks later, I was having open heart surgery. But for what? For a murmur? Yeah. So, so um, actually, yeah. So it, it's um, a, a, a congenital heart defect called an atrial septal defect, um, which is essentially a hole in the heart. And it was a, in a pretty large one, like bigger than a quarter. Uh, and, you know, my son has that. My son. Oh my ha- God. Yeah, he's. Okay. Uh, I mean, he's got a, a slew of health issues, but one of them is that, and that. It's actually correctable, though. It's like if you're going to have a heart defect, an ASD is is among the better ones to get, right? I guess. It, it, yeah, I know, and I've got to tell you, it like it, it um, finding out about it and and living in the you know late late twentieth century what, is great because. Um, they they sewed it up and, and well they sewed it up with Gore-Tex and patched it and then allegedly the muscle grows over it um, and and you know like once I got cleared I I'm cleared to do anything I don't have a cardiologist anymore and yeah I have some weird scars um, and 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 some um, wire wrapped around my sternum because of course they had to split it in half. Um, but the, can't they sense. can't they do that surgery? Because like they're talking, uh, they're telling us like sometimes this with little kids, you know, can heal on its own. It's not common, but it does happen. But if he still has it, like next year, it's like an overnight stay in the hospital. They go in through your leg, and they like yeah. So you know that's um, it. They can do it in this really great non invasive way, and and I bet they I bet it's even better now. Um, and they were, they tried to do that for me and, um, and apparently like I have this weird frame. So like I have like really like skinny forearms, but wide shoulders. And apparently I have like really tiny veins and arteries. So they were going to go up through my leg. Um, but then, um, it was my, my arteries were too small. So they couldn't do it. And, and I had this, this doctor who was, you know, um, totally full of himself in this very charming way. 
because um, that's what you want with a heart surgeon. You want to be totally confident. <laughs> right. So, so he was telling me after, he's like, so I couldn't do it. So I just, you know, split you open and like, and we did it. Um, yeah. So it, it, it could have been um, a, a lot less invasive, but, but my arteries were too small. And I assume now that, that they can do it with, with very tiny, tiny tools. Um, yeah. So, so that was some of the problems with splitting it open that, that, that probably affected recovery more that, um, like I had weird, um, back muscle pains because of course, when they split open your chest, it, it rips up your back muscles. Um, and, and that like hurt more than the, than like anything having to do with the heart itself. Um, yeah, so that, that was weird, but, um, but my recovery was still like, you know, I was back to work in, in, in six weeks. Um, and, and, you know, and, and now, like I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm better than new. In fact, it was, um, getting, getting the surgery, like it was great for, for like playing, pick up basketball and things because, Hey, my heart didn't have to work twice as hard. To, <laughs> right. You're not yeah. like, there's not a bird in your chest flapping its wings. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so like, Brad, how, like, how's your son doing then? Uh, it's a complicated story. He's got like a, a slew of health issues. Uh, the ASD is probably the least among them. So, it, you know, we're, uh, it's like a one, it's one of those things you, it sounds cliche, but you take it one day at a time and, uh, he's sweet as can be, you know, but he, uh, he's got some neurological issues that have, um, that prevent him from using the left side of his body very well. So he can't walk yet, even though he's two and a half. And then, um, you know, he's got a genetic disorder. He's got epilepsy. He's got all sorts of shit. <laughs> it's a oh, good, man. He That's got what... he got dealt a rough hand. Right, right. Um, how 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 are you and your partner dealing with with um with the stresses of that? Well, I mean, again, it's one day at a time. Uh, yeah. You know, I I think pretty well, but it's hard. You know, it's like it, you, you talk to any parent or any person, but especially people who have kids. If your child is imperiled, um, it, you know, there's damage or, or difficulty. It's hard to tolerate, you know? Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's, I mean, I won't lie. It's really, really difficult, but hopefully what it will do is, uh, make us stronger, you know, right, like that's right. the, that's the hope, but that takes work and it takes time. I mean, there's a, there's healing involved and like, I feel like, uh, you know, scar tissue is an apt metaphor. Like, you know, it really wounds you when right. your kid gets diagnosed with stuff. You're just like, oh, like it's just an, it's a, you know, I feel like I'm walking around with a gaping wound, you know, all the time and waiting for it to sort of scar over. And, you know, it's only been uh, a year and change and it takes a long time, right, <laughs> you know, right. like that healing process is, I mean, I don't know, maybe for some people they, you know. They, you know, the, the scar tissue happens overnight, but that's not me. It's just, it's take, it's going to take a little bit of time. I think my wife is the same, but we're, uh, we're working at it, you know? And, um, I feel like, uh, trying to do the things that one should do to take care of oneself. You know, it's like, uh, what's the metaphor I always use. It's the, when you're on the airplane and they tell you to use, you know, to put the oxygen mask on yourself first before you oxygenate your kids or anybody else, <laughs> like you sort of have to do that stuff. You have to do self-care, uh, pretty rigorously so that you don't get overwhelmed so that you don't, uh, 
you know, find yourself diminished in terms of what you can offer to your other kid or to your partner or to your friends or your family. You know, it's like, right, it's, right. it's that challenge. So trying my best. I, I, uh, that's the best I can tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're, that's so true though. The idea that you, you have to have to be yourself in order to, to help take care of others. So man, it sounds hard. Um, Hey, if you ever, um, down the road, want to, want to talk about atrial septal stuff. Um, I'm, you know, and, and of course now for the surgery that I had was, was, was prehistoric compared to what they do now, but, but please holler. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, we'll see. I think we're going to find out next year, probably. He's got like an annual cardiology appointment, you know, where they go in and they sort of uh, check it out. And I think if we see that it's still there at age three, I want to say they said age three or four, they'll go in and they'll patch it up. Great, great. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm living proof that, yeah, that, that it, it's... a. Um, in terms of, as you said, like if, if you're going to have heart surgery, that's the kind you want. Right, um, right. yeah, <laughs> that's my, that's our victory, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so what about, uh, this book is not for you. And like, what about writing fiction? I mean, it sounds like you, uh, were working, uh, you know, you're working a day job that was very demanding and then you have this heart surgery and, and was that a pivot point where you sort of admitted to yourself like, Hey, this is something I want to do. Uh, I'm, I'm aware maybe now more acutely than ever before that, uh, you know, time is, time is, is ticking. And yeah, yeah. Uh, was it that kind of thing, that kind of existential, like I'm going to, I'm going to do what I want to do with my life and I got to find a way to, to make sure that I'm taking care of the most important things. Yeah. Yeah. It, it very much was that, that was the point then that I, I decided, um, Hey, I was going to leave Kansas city and, and, and transition by finding a, a, a different job, um, in a college town where I could start taking classes. And that's what led me up to Binghamton, New York. Um, and, and I wanted to take graduate classes. And, um, at, at that point I was thinking, um, even then about a, about a PhD instead of an MFA, because I, I wanted at least, you know, like, like four or five years where I could really be immersed in books. And I, I thought, Hey, I didn't know what I would do after, but I knew I wanted that time. Um, and, and, you know, and I was right around my, my, um, late twenties. So it was the time to do it. I was single and, and, and I decided, yeah, that, okay, I really want to try to write fiction and commit myself to it. And I knew I was ready. And sometimes I talk to my students in that way that, hey, maybe you do love to write fiction, but, but Bill, hey, you're, you're not writing any fiction. And maybe, maybe it's not the time in your life. Maybe you'll do it when you're 60. Um, well, I, for me, I think that that job and, and being immersed in reading, reading so much great fiction, um, and, and then the heart surgery, it, it made me think, yeah, I wanted to do something different. So Binghamton was, was, well, um, the, the, the job was hard and I, and I did not love it, although I love the people I worked with. Um, but moving to Binghamton and starting to take classes at, at SUNY Binghamton, now Binghamton University, um, was, was, was so important to me. And I took a great Dickens class with, um, uh, a professor named Philip Roberts. And, and then, um, he liked me enough to recommend to Jack Vernon, um, that, that Jack let me into his, his fiction workshop. Um, and Jack is, is, 
most famous for his um, memoir about it, about his brother with with um, who had mental illness and was a hoarder, um, called a, a book of questions, um, and also maybe for his his really weird fantastic historical novel called peter doyle um he, and he he's a great hard-ass professor and and um he, he had to write like four brand new stories and and he read the hell out of them um and and he was awesome and and um so taken that that semester when i took that class with him that's when i applied to phd programs for real including suny binghamton um and i ended up getting the best deal at at to go to ku uh university of kansas and um so i went there and i love that town and and i, I well, it, it figures into this book is not for you yeah yeah exactly that's so so that um this book is not for you is is set in Lawrence where I got my PhD and spent um, four years, four years there. And um, all the, all the bars are, are real places. And I spent tons and tons of time at the replay, um, which, which is this, this great weird punky bar with, with pinball and live music and a, in a, um, a great patio out back with heaters so people can be out there even in late fall. Um, and it's one of my favorite places in the world. So Lawrence, then I went there and wrote fiction and started this book is not for you when I lived in Lawrence in 2003. Um, and then, and then I didn't finish a, a draft that was the real book until 2014 um but lawrence became this hugely important place to me um and this place that i love and this place full of of weirdos in the middle of kansas that people think of as this red state well no uh, lawrence is 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 so bleeding blue that that Governor Brownback calls it a dark area of the state. Uh, <laughs> it's like it's like the Austin, Texas of yeah, Kansas. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, and it has this element of weirdness, like like Austin, and this element of art, and this element of community coming together. Um, and and some of my my best friends in the world still still live there, and these are friendships that I made when I lived there. And um, yeah, so so um, in this book. It's not for you. It is is man? Did you hear my cat yell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that that uh, this book is not for you. Is this this sort of ode to to Lawrence and to the Replay Lounge um, and to the people there um, who who I who I love and have changed my life. Um, and and. and and when I lived in Lawrence, there was um, this this sort of active group, small but active group of anti-racist skinheads, and a buddy of mine, um, Ian Ellis, who who thinks he is is um, the person whom the character of Uncle X is based on. Um, he he was was friends with some of those anti-racist skinheads, and and I met them through him, um, and and. And something about them and, and their and their mission and their concerns always stuck with me, and and so um, so wait like an, wait an anti racist skinhead, yeah yeah. So, so it's so, like so. it's like taking on the aesthetics of the like the the racist skinheads, but then flipping it <laughs> like exactly yeah yeah. But then flipping it and and they would you know they would would throw down with with someone saying or 
something racist in a bar and, and, um, and, and they also had sort of, um, you know, the, the often anti-corporate beliefs as well. And, and, um, but yeah, total aesthetics of, of the skinhead movements with, with, with the shaved heads, um, and, and, you know, the outfits you'd, you'd imagine. Um, and, and they believed in it, um, and believed in being a skinhead and they believed in stopping racists, um, and, and, and they would fight for it. So I had these, you know, um, these impressions and memories and conversations of, of, of these people. Um, and it, so it wasn't until probably I left Lawrence that, that, um, that the novel belonged to, to Neptune, who is the, the first person narrator and this anti-racist skinhead. Um, it, yeah, it wasn't until I left that he, he took over the novel, um, but it belongs to him. Isn't it? Isn't it kind of? It's kind of interesting that you know. Sometimes when you're working on a creative project, uh, I've read about this and talked to people who've had similar experiences where, uh, you know, you you don't necessarily see the thing come into focus until you leave the place where it's set, or you know, a place doesn't come into focus until you're away from it. Was it sort of that thing when you got some some distance from Lawrence that suddenly you were able to wrap your brain around it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I I definitely. I, I, some of that was that distance and that, that after Lawrence um, moved to Berea, Ohio, right outside of Cleveland um, and taught at a liberal arts college. And, and I, I think if I were, were like going to the replay still and going to the shows and, uh, and, and, and seeing the, the people who inspired characters in the book all the time, that, that maybe they couldn't, have, the book couldn't have, come to fruition because they would have been something different and instead they had to become something imagined in my head or something that lives on in my head um and i think i could appreciate lawrence more too um and miss it and sort of and 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 maybe working on this book because it's the kind of thing that i would work on a little bit and then put down and, and put down for years sometimes but when i when i got back into it um, I could I could think about Lawrence and think about this place and imagine it um, and 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 pay a strange sort of respects to Lawrence. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's part of it. Yeah, that probably if I'd stayed there, I never would have would have finished a, a Lawrence novel. I would have written something different. Um, and and but because I, I could I could reach out in that way, and also I think it was important that Neptune has this this really sort of strange, distinct, combative voice um, that was sort of fun to write in, um, but also that that I wrote it in little snippets. So I think because of that, I could pick it up and put it down, and have fun with that voice, and remember that voice, and hear that voice. Um, and if it had been a more traditional novel. I, I don't think I would have sustained it. I think it would have died, but instead somehow it stayed alive with me. And then Neptune, you know, he's lived with me for, you know, somewhere up in my brain for, you know, more than a dozen years. Um, so, so yeah, that, 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 that distance and that chance to, to think about place in some new way mattered so much. It's weird though, because now, um, and, and, and that I, that I, I've given myself, and I don't know why or how, but more liberty to write about places where I do live. So I write a lot of Manhattan, Kansas stories now, and I'm working on a on a on a new book that's set here in Manhattan, Kansas. Um, and I and I sort of think about it in a like a Dickensian way, um, the way that he 
wandered London and knew London and, and talked to its people um, and, and wrote about it in that way. Um, so that's what I'm trying to do with Manhattan. Um, but for Lawrence, and, and part of it, it's maybe because it's it's almost you know a, a self myth for me about how important this place was in my life. That that I think I had to be away from it to to let that myth come alive. Um, yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I uh, I congratulate you. It's uh, I mean to to stick with a novel for more than a dozen years is uh, no small feat, and it's awesome to see it sort of come to, you know come to fruition. And uh, it's been so fun talking with you, getting a chance to meet you over the transom and getting a chance to shine a little bit of light on your book uh, in the book club. So I appreciate you taking the time uh, and I wish you uh, all the best on the the Manhattan fiction, the little apple. Hey, Brad, um, thank you so much. And and this has been so interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for all that you do for 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 writers and readers. Um yeah, it, it is this terrific, awesome thing. And I've been thinking a, a ton about um, I- I indie presses and their editors and the people who start lit magazines and the people who run reading series and the people who run podcasts um, like like you and the book fight guys um, and the people who run independent bookstores and, and you people like you are fucking awesome and you keep the lit world spinning. And I am so grateful Um so thank you for all of that, and, and, and thanks for this conversation today. All right, guys, there you go. That is Daniel A. Hoyt. His novel is called This Book Is Not For You, winner of the inaugural Dezank Fiction Prize, available from Dezank Books. December pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. This book is not for you. Go get your copy today. You can find Daniel online at danielahoyt.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Dan underscore Hoyt. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget this podcast has its own official app. It's free. Go get the app wherever you get your apps. It's a great way to listen. If you want to write to me, if you have something to say to me, you want to write me an email, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. What am I forgetting? Can't remember. Can't remember what I'm forgetting. (laughs) another way of saying I forgot uh, I'm an ego inside of a bag of skin I want very badly to have that experience you know it's my I think that's my number one aspiration not to like arrive at something but I want to be uh, one of these people who's like really connected and who can help other people and like you know it's like one of those people that like animals respond very positively to for reasons that are sort of like, you know, mystifying or like they like walk up to a donkey and like, it just like lays down, you know, lies down. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Not that I want to have uh, some sort of dominion over donkeys, but you know what I'm saying? Like cats, like just like birds alight from your shoulders or whatever. I'm very tired. This is what happens when I podcast late at night. Just work a long day. I'm just shot. It's a different beast. I hope you guys enjoy hearing me talk in the throes of uh, sleep deprivation. All right, I think that's it. I think uh, I'm going to sign off now. Holiday spectacular episode coming up. Thanks to Daniel Hoyt. I'll talk to you guys soon. Okay, thank you. (laughs) 